Well, good morning, everybody. How many of you grew up listening to the folk rock band Crosby, Stills, and Nash? Huh? Do we have some Crosby, Stills, and Nash fans in the room? Sorry, those of you in the younger generation, welcome kids. There was another generation of music you know nothing about, but there's some in the room who know when I'm referring to this group. They were together for 50 years, all right? They sold 70 million albums, all right? And then it came to a point in last month's USA Today, I was skimming the headlines, and there was a big picture of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, and Graham Nash. And here was the quote, September 3rd, 2021 in USA Today. As for Nash, Crosby said, quote, Graham just changed from the guy I thought was my best friend to being a guy that is definitely my enemy, end quote. Now, that doesn't just happen in rock bands, Right? It doesn't, things don't just splinter apart and fracture relationally in bands. It happens in marriages and ministries, right? It happens in families and friendships. It happens in businesses and churches. When you get groups of people together for any extended period of time, you know, trust can be, begin to be fractured and resentments can boil and conflict can mount to the point where someone who used to be in the category of even best friend is thrust into a category of enemy. It's like what Henry Nouwen said. Nouwen said this, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. For some of you, that's a commentary on your life group, (laughs) or your men's group, or your women's group, or or your family unit, right? Community where Jesus calls us into this relational context that life with Him is done in life with others, and it's the place where the people you least perhaps want to be around are always around. And into that space, as Jason read our teaching text this morning, we're, we're in this section on the Sermon on the Mount today that I entitled, Love Who? That's crazy, Jesus. Are you kidding me? I mean, when you really internalize the words that he's saying, you have to react with a sense of, that's impossible. I mean, that might be okay for you, Jesus, but for the rest of us as humans, that's just an unattainable category. But he's giving us a vision, as we talked about last week, an invitation into a kind of life that is open and available to anyone at any time from any background. And so today, we're going to be looking at, I framed up this section today around the what, the who, and the how. So first we're going to look at what in the world is Jesus saying? Let's be clear on that. And then who is He really saying this to? And then how can we apply this in our everyday lives today? So first, the what. And you notice when the text was read, there was this refrain. And if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we did an overview last Sunday. So if you missed last week, jump on sometime and kind of get the big picture. We're going to now dive down into some of the components over the weeks ahead. But there's this structure in chapter 5 that went like this. You heard that it was said, but I tell you, right? Repeatedly in chapter 5. This is the sixth occurrence of that refrain. You heard that it was said, this is Jesus now 
Rabbi Jesus teaching a crowd of people whom we looked at who was in the crowd last week. And you can see from the statement you heard that it was said, he's assuming his hearers understand the Jewish law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He's quoting all through the Sermon on the Mount a very well-known passage from the Torah. In this case, it's right, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They all would have known that text. And so everyone from the youngest of Jewish child, whether they were a wealthy family, a day laborer, a fisherman, a tax collector, they all would have been well-schooled in Torah. So he's quoting something that everyone would have understood. You heard that it was said, then he says, but I tell you. And so he's taking quotes from the Old Testament law, and he's saying, I'm going to press it deeper. I'm, I'm looking not just for a righteousness like we talked last week, a righteousness that comes from the law, which was the pharisaical system of righteousness. Righteousness is just a Bible word for right living before God. So, of course, everyone in the system of Judaism of Jesus' day was interested if they were participating in temple practices, in growing up knowing the Torah. They wanted to live right before God in some measure, and they believed the way to do that was know the Torah, interpret the Torah, and live the Torah. And so Jesus says, I know you're devoted to the Torah, but I tell you, I'm going to press it from a righteousness based on the law, to a righteousness of the heart. And remember the statement earlier in chapter 5 where Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, so let's not think that Jesus is just, you know, pushing the law to the side. Jesus has great respect and reverence for the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish it, but what did he say? I came to fulfill it. So Jesus is saying the law, the Torah, has a, a place it has, a, it has an appropriate place in the life of faith. It reveals the character of God. It clarifies the expectations of God. But the Torah has limitations. The Torah is just focused on the act, and Jesus is interested in changing the source. You see that? The Torah can't deal with the source of our actions, which is what the Pharisees were convinced that you could do. External adherence to the law would somehow work its way to an internal change. And Jesus says, no, but I tell you, I want to get to the source of the matter. I want to deal with the heart. I want to get a righteousness from the heart that will come as a package deal, change the actions. It's external, internal to internal, external. And this is what he's doing all through there. I put in your notes. If you didn't pick up a note sheet on the way in, you can get them. You're welcome to get up and get them now. They're at the tables in the back, or you can pick it up on your way out. Galatians 3.21, on your notes, this is what the Apostle Paul is driving at. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Do you see what Paul's saying? He was raised in the system of pharisaical righteousness by the law, but he said it can't bring life. It can't change the source and motives of my actions. It can't transform me on the inside. That's what Paul is saying, who is very well grounded in all of this. And now Jesus is saying, I tell you, I'm inviting you into a kind of life that has reverence for the law, has respect for the law, but understands the limitations of the law. There's a boundary for what the law can do. I want you to live and fulfill. I'm living Torah before you, and I'm asking you now to go on a journey with me for a righteousness that comes 
from the heart. I'm going to set things right at the source so that your actions will then be swallowed up by that change on the inside. The Pharisees were focused on controlling the act instead of changing the source. Jesus is going to flip the equation. Let's deal with the source, and then the act will take care of itself. This is what's called a transformation of the heart. So to understand Matthew chapter 5, you've got to understand that this is what Jesus is addressing in all those paragraphs. So just earlier in the chapter, if you look back to verse 21, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. He's quoting one of the top ten, ten commandments. Exodus 19, Every, all of the Jewish hearers, yes, do not murder. Yes, do not murder. He says, but I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Do you see what Jesus is pressing there? He's saying, hey, it's a good thing not to murder, but you can not murder and still be all twisted up in your heart, have anger and resentment and bitterness to the point that Crosby and Nash call each other enemies. Well, they're not murdering anybody. It's a good thing not to murder. Jesus is pressing it deeper. I'm actually wanting you to become the kind of person where your heart doesn't flow towards bitterness and anger and resentment and hate towards others. Do you see that? And so as we're talking through this message and this text this morning, maybe there's a relationship or two that's coming to mind. Maybe there's someone in your life this morning that is exceedingly difficult to love for all kinds of reasons. And maybe you've been tempted to turn your heart towards kind of pushing them away or getting it to the point where you're just going to sever any kind of relational contact on your, from your heart's perspective. And Jesus is inviting us to reconsider our posture towards those in our life that are really, really difficult to love. Because when you read this text, there's no indication that you can be a human in this world and not be around people who may be tossed in the category of enemies. It seems to be Jesus saying, hey, this is just part of, like, a, it's not a Christian thing, this is a human thing. That you're going to be around people, you're going to be in relationships, they're going to break down and fracture and splinter apart, and now he's calling us into a way of response to that. That's not righteousness of the law, it's a righteousness of the heart. Dallas Willard shares the, the metaphor in all of this as he's trying to unpack it in his book, Divine Conspiracy. Willard says, think of it like, he says, I'm planning a trip to New York. He says, when I plan a trip to New York, I don't sit down and outline how I'm not going to Atlanta or not going to London. He says, when I get to New York, my friends don't greet me at the airport and celebrate all the ways that I didn't go to Atlanta or didn't go to London. Willard said, no, actually what I did was I just took the necessary steps to go to New York and the rest of it took care of itself. So I put this quote in your notes. Follow this. He uses that analogy to bridge into this Matthew 5 teaching technique of Jesus. Likewise, when I treasure those around me and see them as God's creatures designed for His eternal purposes, hear this now, I do not make an additional point of not hating them, or calling them twerps or fools. Not doing those things is simply part of the package. On the other hand, not going to London or Atlanta is a poor plan for going to New York. And not being wrongly angry and so on is a poor plan for treating people with love. <laughs> you see that? 
So Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees, I know you're focused on changing the act and ignoring the source. I'm trying to get you to see, we got to change the source so the act comes as a part of the package. So you just get focused on, hey, plan your trip to New York. Don't worry about not going to Atlanta or London. Just focus on going to New York, and all of the actions flow from your direction. So he changes in here. Are you tracking with me? This is what he's doing all through Matthew chapter 5. So I tell you, do not murder. Great, you're not murdering. But if you're all bound up with anger and resentment towards people in your life, Jesus said, what is that? You see, he's pushing. He's pushing it for something deeper. And so that's where we come to the section today where he talks about love your enemies. He says in Matthew 5, 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. They're quoting, he's quoting Leviticus 19. Everyone in the gathering would have known that text. And they would have known neighbor in Leviticus 19 meant, hear this, fellow Israelite. So that's what it meant. Love your neighbor meant love your fellow Israelite. Jesus presses it deeper, but I tell you, and what does he say? Did you notice he changes the singular word neighbor in verse 44, but I tell you love your, what's the word? Enemies, plural. And then pray for those who persecute you, who make your life exceedingly difficult. So, so Jesus says, hey, your enemies, now He's not, it's, it's no longer your fellow Israelite. This is about all people everywhere. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter their religious background. It doesn't matter their personal history. It's, it embodies everyone. So Jesus is expanding now the focus of this action word love. And the word he chose is agape in the New Testament. It's a word used throughout the New Testament language. Agape is an action word. I put it in your notes that way. It isn't Hallmark movie type love. It's not warm sentimentality of feeling. Agape, it means this, to will the good of another. It's a choice word. So here's what Jesus is saying. You actually need to look around and see that all the people in your life are in this space that you need to will the good of their, of them and the other. That's your, it's an action, it's a choice. You intentionally choose not to let bitterness creep into your heart. You choose that. You choose a deliberate refusal to let hate seep into your heart. Or if you look at the paragraph right before it, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, he's saying, hey, here's what you refuse to do. You refuse, you say no to this issue of reciprocity. The principle of reciprocity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And you say, yeah, to this God impulse that says, love your neighbors. Actually love the neighbors whom you actually would call enemies. And pray for those who make your life exceedingly difficult. That's, I want to change the source. So that flows out of your being. So who is your neighbor? Everybody. All people, everywhere. Even your enemies. That's your neighbor. And what does it mean to love your enemies? Verse 44, you pray for them. And one of the enemies he talks about in verse 44 are those who make your life exceedingly difficult. That's one who would be the cat, those who persecute you. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a picture. Like, what is he saying? It's an action. It's a choice. It's a work of changing the source to deal with the act. Don't just focus on not committing murder. Don't just focus on not hating your enemy. I want to change the source so the package deal of the act is swallowed up in it.
You tracking with me? We'll come up for air just in a minute. Hang with me here. So verse 45, okay, verse 45 now gets into the who. Who is he addressing in all of this section? Look at verse 45 in your text. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. So the children of your Father in heaven. You see, Jesus is saying this. If you want to be a child of your Father in heaven, that you embody the essence of the heavenly Father. So to be a child of your Father in heaven means your life reflects the essence of the character of your heavenly Father. So here's a picture Jesus is painting. He says, you want to know what God the Father is like? God the Father is like loving your enemies. He's the one who wills the good of the other. He's self-sacrifice for the sake of others. That's what God's like. And so His children are most like God when they will the good of someone who is persecuting them, who's making their life painfully difficult. You bless them, you pray for them, you serve them. You do what you can in the way that you can. And if you can't engage in doing good for them, you pray for them and bless them from afar. It takes two people to engage in this kind of relationship. Sometimes a relationship is so broken down, the other party isn't interested in seeing your face. You don't just thrust yourself into that. You respectfully pray and bless from afar. But Jesus would say, as far as it concerns your heart, what's flowing out of your heart towards that person who doesn't want to see your face? That's what he's after. Do you see that? And let's be candid. Sometimes relationships in this life, for the most part, go unresolved. There's just large sections of relationship that go unfinished and unsettled and just not work. That's part of living in a fallen world and being fallen people. But Jesus is trying to get at the source that says, as far as it concerns you, children of God, will you reflect the character of the heavenly Father and have your posture turn towards who? All people, everywhere, even your enemies, even those who make your life difficult, have this posture turn towards and reflect His character that God wills the good of the other. And when we love our enemies, when we love people in our life, when we bless people in our life, when we serve people in our life who are exceedingly difficult to do that to, do you see then we mirror back the character of the God we worship and serve? That's what Jesus is saying. This is what the Father is like. So that's who who he's addressing. And there's no better example of this than Jesus himself, right? When Jesus is hanging on the cross on Calvary, What does he say? He's there. He's been persecuted. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been bloodied. He's been crucified. He's hanging there, and with the last breaths of his life, what does he say? To his accusers, to his enemies, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus says, yes, that. I want to see you. I want to invite you into a kind of life where your heart can actually flow in that direction towards people who did. It would be hard to say, I know some of you in really difficult situations, maybe not quite the degree that Jesus on Calvary was. So I know it feels painfully difficult. I know you feel like you're being crucified. And so Jesus understands and beaten, bloodied, mocked, hanging there as the, don't forget, innocent one. They freed the guilty Barabbas. (laughs) 
So some of you carrying the that's not right card, Jesus knows all about the that's not right card. And he still has this kind of heart who he offers to anyone at any time from any background. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now listen, in Jesus' story, it didn't all get set right there. He takes his last breath. All the Romans didn't fall on their face and repent and ask him to forgive. No, that's not how it happened. Herod didn't all of a sudden turn. Caesar didn't all of a sudden say, oh, forgive me. That's not how it happened. But there was this movement that continued that we are a part of today, right, where the kingdom of God is unleashed in the hearts of people, often the ordinary and the overlooked and the forgotten and the neglected. Remember, that's who's in the crowd, those suffering in chronic pain, those with illness, those demon-possessed, those whom the religious system of that day had virtually nothing to offer. Jesus says, I have something to offer you. You have heard that it was said in the language of the Torah, but I tell you. So what is Jesus saying in Love Your Enemies? He's saying you can have the kind of, the source of your actions, he's inviting us into a righteousness of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And then your actions are swallowed up. So you'd like to have a different posture towards that person or persons. Instead of just focusing on what you want to see change in the person or persons, Jesus said, let's focus on setting things right in your heart. And then who is he addressing? Children of your Father in heaven. Those whom would call God our heavenly Father. Mirror his character, the essence of who he is, by living and loving our enemies. He loves enemies. We love enemies. And then we get to this last section. So I put in your notes, how? How do we do all this? And there's this section that seems a bit strange at first in verse 45 when he says how he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you see that? So here's Jesus saying, hey, think about the weather for a minute. Jesus is saying this, we are to be as indiscriminate with our love for others as God is with the weather. That's how his posture is like, your heart towards others should be as indiscriminate as God is with the weather. The sun doesn't discriminate, the rain doesn't discriminate, so our love for others should be widespread and indiscriminate, even to the point where you will the good of your enemy. That's what Jesus is, and you pray for those who make your life difficult. That. That's unbelievable that he's painting a picture for this is the kind of life available to anyone at any time from any background. And then he drops the real bomb, the very last verse of chapter 5, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. It's good for you, Jesus. Be perfect. I put in your notes the word he chose for perfect. It's the word teleos. And teleos means to fully realize the purpose for which it was planned and designed. So here's Jesus saying, if you're a child of God, verse 45, then step into that and act like it, verse 48. Grow into you who you already are. You see that? So if you're a child of God, verse 45, then step into it and act. Grow into who you already are, verse 48. Live into the full purpose that I've created and designed for you to live in. Think of it, those of you married, think of it like when you got married. 
I remembered back in June of 1992, I walked into Community Heights Alliance Church on a Saturday. I walked in as a single man, 23 years old. A few hours later, I walked out with a title called husband. Now question, church, how much did I know at age 23 in June of 1992, how much did I know about being a husband? It's not a trick question. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. But hear this. I walked out as a husband, and I'll spend the rest of my life becoming a husband. Telios, I will step in to the full measure and plan and purpose for which God designed marriage to be. I was identified in June of 1992, married, but I'll spend the rest of my life becoming who I already am. All right, let's think it. Let's try another. Let's swing again. Okay. Let's think about parenting. Okay, several years later with parenting. Mom, Dad, isn't this just one of the holy, craziest things that happens in life when you're at the family life center at a hospital and your nursing staff is taking care of your baby for a couple of days and then it beca- it's discharge day? You sign all these papers that at this point you have no idea what you're signing. But I remember signing a form that said, for the first time in my life, I signed a form, Eric Simpson, parent. You go, what? I'm a parent. And then they walk you down to your car. And they help you strap this baby into this car seat. And they make sure it's done correctly. All the straps are where they need to be. And then the nurse does what? shuts the door, and walks away. And you're standing there at your car. And I thought to myself, this should be illegal. (laughs) I thought of all the hours I spent learning how to drive. I mean, I thought, goodness, you have to have all the driver's ed training and all this coaching and training to learn how to drive. What about being a parent? None. So September of 2000, Kendra and I became parents. I became a father. I walked out of of St. Vincent Family Life Center in September of 2000. And then in December of 2004, we walked out of St. Vincent Carmel. I walked out as a father. I signed the form parent. Question, church, how much did I know on that day about being a father? Nothing. There's a theme here. Nothing. I walked out as a father. I will spend the rest of my life becoming a father. Telios. Growing into the full measure of who I already am. I'm declared to be a husband. I'm declared to be a father. Jesus says, if you choose to enter into the kind of life he is painting in Matthew chapter 5, here, if you want to, you're a child of God in the language of John chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus. You can be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can enter the kingdom of God or in the language of Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus says, there's this kind of life available to you. You can become a child of God. Yes, children of your Father in heaven. Now spend the rest of your life becoming who you already are. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Of course we're going to fall short, but it's about stepping into and embracing the purpose that God has designed a child of God to live. What's the vision of that? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's a vision of it. Where you're not going to just be satisfied with not murdering people. Great. Check that one off. Let's not murder. Yes. Let's press it a little deeper. Could we become the kind of people where hate and bitterness and anger and resentment doesn't flow towards others so freely? It's possible. Could we? Possible. And on and on and on through the sermon, he says, this is the kind of life available to anyone at any time in any way. Do you see the sheer brilliance of Jesus in this sermon? And there's no teacher like Jesus of Nazareth. There's no one. No rabbi taught these things in his day. He's systematically undermining and kind of deconstructing the entire pharisaical system of righteousness, systematically taking all of that down and presenting a righteousness of the heart that no one until Jesus came to speak about. And I would argue, no one since. If you want to know why I put all my chips in Jesus' basket, right there. He says, you can actually be invited in the kind of a life that your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> no one says that but Jesus. I'll change the source so your actions. They're just focused on the actions. They just want to check off all the actions. Jesus said, let's deal with the source, and then the actions will become a part of the package. And so on the back side of your notes, you probably see this diagram here. We'll get into it more in the weeks ahead. I wanted to position this little triangular diagram as an answer to the question, how do you actually, what, how do you become more of who you already are? The vision of the Sermon on the Mount is a becoming vision. It's understanding your identity as a child of God and then growing into and stepping into who you already are. How does that happen? Well, this triangle is my best attempt to represent how I understand Jesus practically works this out in our everyday life. There's the teaching components, which we're discussing here, not just on Sunday mornings, but there's Tuesday night alpha marriages going on, and Wednesday night men's stuff's going on, and Thursday night there's women's Bible studies going on, there's life groups happening, and there's kids ministry and student ministry and all this. There's teaching where we're opening God's Word, and we're trying to hear a narrative of truth from God about how the way the world works and how humans are to be with each other and with Him. It's teaching. That's a really important part. Because if you haven't noticed yet, in our world today, there's a lot of noise, but it's fairly devoid of wisdom. The Bible calls it foolishness when there's just a bunch of rhetoric and speculation about spiritual things with no substance to it. I'm going to put my eggs in Jesus of Nazareth who rose from the dead, who understands what it means to stare sin and death and injustice in the face and overcomes. I'm with Him. So I want to anchor my life on the truth of who Jesus says I am and how Jesus says this world should work. I don't know about you. Everybody's got to make a decision. Everybody's a disciple of somebody. You, can say, you could call, ultimately it might be yourself. Maybe you've decided you're kind of king of your own kingdom. You're going to run it how you want to run it. But somewhere along the way, you've got to decide who's going to have the voice of truth in your life. Who's going to have the upper hand of authority in your life? I choose Jesus. As a church, we choose Jesus. We submit ourselves to His teachings and His vision 
for flourishing in this world. Teaching, and then you've got these focal practices. Do you see this other point on the triangle? Focal practices is just all the, another phrase for that might be spiritual disciplines. There are, certain th- there are certain rhythms that you work in the Christian life that we'll be getting into through the Sermon on the Mount, that there are certain ways of living each day that help work the muscles of the Sermon on the Mount. You train yourself into becoming who you already are, and then you do it in community. There's nothing about a vision for life in the kingdom of God that is isolated and singular. It's, it's a us-we-together thing. The whole concept and vision of love requires another. So Jesus' vision for life in His kingdom is an others-oriented vision. It requires community, which is why He has so much to say about texts like today. He's like, hey, you're going to have a bunch of community. And as Dallas Willard says, you need to get connected to a church because you have to practice loving your enemies, and you're going to find a few at church. If you haven't yet, just stick around. You're going to find a few. Somebody's going to rub you the wrong way, look at you the wrong way, frustrate you. Maybe it's me. But you're going to find a few. And instead of just taking your Bible and running off to the next group of people to go hang out with, how about working the muscle of, I want to figure out how to love them and bless them and serve them and do good to them. I want my heart to flow in goodness and self-sacrifice towards them. Jesus says that kind of life is available. I want that kind of life. There's plenty of examples of the other in our world today. What a beacon of light it would be to be the kind of community where that practice would flow. So teaching, focal practices, and community, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. None of, we've got no shot for any of this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount if there isn't this transformation of life coming beyond us, turning things around inside of us. That's the only shot. That's why the Holy Spirit's at the center of that. It's a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered life. And then I just added a little line at the bottom. There's something in the role of suffering Suffering through the years seems to be the vehicle upon which God says, I want you to really grow into who you already are. And you know, one of the main ways of doing that is you're going to go through some stuff that you're not sure how you're going to get through what you're going through. The ingredients of pain and heartache and setback and disappointment and confusion, all of it. So it's It's my attempt in one picture there to say, how does Jesus work this vision for becoming who we already are out as a child of God? It's that, I think. Teaching, focal practices, community, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, suffering, hardship, setback, loss, grief through the years. And so this morning, church, we're going to put one of these practices in place as we go to the communion table together. So worship team, come on up. We're going to draw this together and have a response this morning around our communion elements. And these were on the tables on your way in. If you didn't get a chance to pick one up in just a moment, when we partake, you'll be able to do that. There's some gluten-free options back there. You know, this is one of the focal practices that Jesus left His church to participate in, to work the muscles of the Sermon on the Mount when we gather that in the language of Romans 5, do we realize that when Romans 5 says, we were once called, hear this, enemies of God. We were enemies of the cross of Christ. And in that state, Jesus self-sacrificed for the good of all of us. Yes, that's what this represents. That we can move from an enemy to a child. 
you can be adopted into God's family. How? Right here. Christ's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. You don't have to remain in hostility and distance and keeping God at arm's length. It doesn't have to be that way. There is a kind of life that you can live with God and in God and through God and for God by the power of the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus. Of course, when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, they could have never fully grasped how the embodiment of this was going to play its way out. But just in a few short years after that sermon, a good portion of that crowd would be standing on Calvary, shedding tears, and watching a man lay down his life, even his, for his enemies, for the good of others. That's what these elements represent today. And so in a moment, we're literally going to physically partake. You're going to physically internalize a little piece of cracker that represents the body of Christ. And you're going to physically internalize the juice that represents the blood. <clears throat> and when you do that, I want you to just, just kind of picture like Jesus addressing the source. Some of you come in carrying some pretty big and heavy things towards another or maybe others. There's a group or an individual and you've got some stuff and you know in your heart it's who, And you feel it. And you'd love to see that change. You'd love to see it flow or a Christ-like direction. Here's the hope. We can't white-knuckle this thing. It's not about trying harder. It's about working these practices and training wisely and entering into a kind of life and saying, Lord, I need your help. Forgive me for what I'm holding against those. Forgive me for my thoughts or my words or even my actions towards those. Change me. You don't have to be a member of Eagle to participate in communion around here, but the scripture is clear. You need to be a child of God. You need to be a follower of Jesus. In just a moment, if you've never done that, I'll give you an opportunity to do that this morning. You can pray and ask him into your heart and receive communion for the first time. Because we're supposed to examine what's going on in here as we partake. And maybe today as you intake Christ's life afresh, there might be this infusion of love for others, even our enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this vision of a kind of life that I think inside of all of us, we know deep down this is the way we really want to live. And we know deep down, we'd sure love everyone to live like this around us. And we know deep down, we fall greatly short. So thank you when we were lost, when we were enemies, when our faces were turned away from you, you came, you died, you gave of yourself that we might have life. And if you're listening today online or you're here in the room and you've never given your heart to Christ, all you have to do is cry out in this moment, say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me for my sin. I open up my heart to you. Come and fill me with your spirit. I want to live for you. I desperately need a transformation of the heart. Have your way with me. Just in the quietness here, you just pray, Jesus, save me. And then maybe for others this morning, you're, you're in a fresh reckoning. There is a, there is a face of a person, there is a name, there is a circumstance that is so front burner 
from this text today for you. And you know you need a change of heart or you need power beyond yourself. Do not just tolerate them, but to actually love them. So Jesus, here we are. We take these elements, we receive them as your very life for us, symbolically representing your broken body and shed blood, and we do so as an act of worship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.